I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here. And before we get to this week's episode, I just wanted to let you know that we will be discussing very controversial conspiracy theories and American politics in this week's interview. The views expressed in this interview are solely those of my guest and myself and not the E1 Podcast Network. So without further ado, enjoy our interview with T. Krulis all about his new book, American Madness and the Phantom Patriot. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome, everyone, to Somewhere in the Skies. Symbolism and conspiracy theory is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So buckle up. This is going to be an amazing conversation with first-time guest and author T. Krulis joining us. So T, welcome for the very first time to Somewhere in the Skies, my man. Hey, Ryan. I'm so glad to be here. This is awesome. I really love your show. Thank you. Thank you. And I should say the same for you. We'll talk all about your podcast and everything you got going on over at your website later. But um, today we're going to be talking about your newest book, American Madness, which, uh, oh man, what a journey. I, I don't remember the last time that I was so glued to a book that I forgot what time it was, which is so easy to do in this pandemic lockdown world we're living in. Whew, this book could not have come at a better time, Just not just to read, but what it covers. I mean, it's startling how everything in this book, which we will get to, uh, coincides with what's going on in the world right now. So um, let's not really waste any time, man. Um, the book is all about a dude named Richard McCaslin. So I have to ask, how did you find this guy? We'll talk about his journey in the book and um, all that, but... Yeah. How did you meet him and um, how did you come to uh, to understand who Richard was and what he means in, in terms of the theme of your book? Yeah, well, this is pretty rare because it's kind of a story that fell in my lap and it forever changed my life and took my life into some strange directions. But what happened was um, in 2010, I was working on my first book, uh, which is titled Heroes in the Night. I actually got a copy on my desk here. Um, and this book is about this kind of unusual subculture of people that call themselves real-life superheroes. And they actually adopt their own superhero personas. And some of them try to fight crime in the streets. And uh, others have a more mellow take where they do, like, charitable stuff. Um, so I'm trying to wrap my head around this story. And one of the good ideas I had at that time was I had started a blog. It was just a blog spot page. 
that was also called Heroes in the Night. And I was just, you know, talking about some of these uh, real-life superheroes that I was meeting, and I'd write little blurbs about them. If I found something interesting in my research, I'd share it on the blog. And uh, it started to get some pretty good traffic uh, because it got picked up by some media outlets that were looking for an expert, quote-unquote. So one day... I open my email and I have a message from a guy named Richard McCaslin. And he said, uh, I, I found your blog and um, I'm interested in this book that you're working on. And I think that you might be interested in my story because uh, back in the day, I was a real life superhero known as the Phantom Patriot. And my claim to fame is that in 2002, I snuck into the Bohemian Grove and I lit it on fire. And I was like, what? What is this guy talking about? Like, uh, I had never heard of the Bohemian Grove at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and I was like, this is really strange. Like, it was, you know, we'll probably get into some more of the details, but uh, I was talking about rich and powerful men doing a a ritual in front of a statue of an owl. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm interested in the story, whatever it is. Uh, So I messaged Richard back and I said, yeah, I'm I'm interested to hear about uh, what your story is and how you got into the Bohemian Grove. And that started this long, almost 10 year process of, slowly figuring out what Richard's life story was, uh, interviewing a lot of people who were involved in his life. And uh, one thing that was very clear pretty early on was that, oh, this guy is way into conspiracy theory. Hmm. Um, And so the book sort of evolved to talk about a lot of conspiracies. And Richard was sort of my guide into conspiracy land. He would tell me about something and I would look it up and, and research it. Um, you know, and then it, it was a book that I was kind of struggling with the direction of where it would go. Um, and in between my first book and this book, I wrote two others. So I would kind of work on this book and then put it on the back burner sometimes for like a year, you know. And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, that story, I, I really want to tell it. So I'd work on it some more and interview some people. And then eventually the book started to evolve in the direction of this kind of conspiracy culture that we find ourselves in now. I was like, wow, a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing uh, is stuff that Richard talked to me about years ago. So that kind of became the goal towards the end of the writing process was to tie it into the bigger problem that's going on here. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure writing, writing is never easy, but you know, the uh, real world implication, I think, of what you were asking in the book kind of just fell in your lap in the last couple of maybe four yeah. years or so. And um, I think people understand why that might be. But we'll get to that. Um, but, yeah, you did mention let's let's I guess kind of run through the Bohemian Grove a little bit. I mean, the first time I remember hearing about it was um, I did read uh, the John Ronson book. Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, yeah. And what was the, oh, um, Decoded. 
uh, sure. the Brad Meltzer yeah. television show. And yeah. again, I was just like, whoa. I mean, I know, like, we heard, heard about Skull and Bones and, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, kind of stuff like that throughout the years. But this was an actual place, like you said, where all these elites came, including, like, U.S. presidents and whatnot. I'll I'll shut up now and let you kind of run us through. What did you learn about the Bohemian Grove? Give us a little crash course for that. Yeah, I mean, this was uh, really um, one of the early hooks that really drew me into the story. Um, because Richard had told me about this place, uh, and I started to hardcore research the Bohemian Grove. Um, and what I found, and this is going to be true of a lot of conspiracies, was a lot of stuff he was telling me about this place was true. So um, uh, the Bohemian Club started in the late 1800s in San Francisco. And sort of the original idea was that the club was going to help uh, promote the arts in San Francisco, which was still a pretty new city at that time. But uh, And so the early members were a lot of poets and artists and uh, journalists but they sort of ran into this classic dilemma where uh, they were poor artists and they didn't have money to fund their, their vision or whatever. So they began to invite in bankers and other titans of industry. Um, over the years, it evolved and um, they bought up this land in Northern California, which they called Bohemian Grove. And it's this huge, uh, you know, two to 3,000 acre encampment. Um, and this is sort of their retreat. Now, the members uh, are some of the world's most powerful men. It's a men-only club. Uh, they don't allow media into the Bohemian Grove. And so when Richard was telling me about this, I was like, okay, I don't know how, how you could know this. But um, I found... Uh, a lot of reports by journalists who have snuck into the Grove over the years and a lot of historical documents. So it, it sounds crazy, but, um, you know, yes, uh, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan were both members of the club and they did have a private discussion inside the Grove where they talked about which one of them would run for president first. Uh, George W. Bush, uh, his father, George H. W. Bush, and Prescott Bush, who is his father, all members of the club. Lots of famous politicians, uh, entertainers, owners of sports um, leagues and stuff like that. Um, and so when they pay for this membership, which is, is quite expensive, um, they have access to go to the Grove anytime they want as well as the Bohemian Club uh, Clubhouse, which is in downtown San Francisco. Um, but the big sort of party every year happens in mid-July. They do this thing called the Summer Encampment, and that's when most of the members go out there together. So there's thousands, thousands of, of guys who go out there. Um, and it's supposed to be this sort of fun, relaxing uh, two-week vacation where you know they go bird watching, they go swimming in the river, uh, they drink a lot, um, and they sort of kick all of this off with a pretty bizarre ritual that's called the cremation of care. It's this very theatrical performance where um, inside the grove they have a forty-foot statue of an owl, um, 
And some of these uh, members are, are dressed up sort of as druids and they come out with torches and they say this weird, like cryptic nature poetry about how great mother earth is. Um, and then they burn this effigy in front of the owl and it's called dull care. And this effigy is supposed to represent all of their worldly hassles that they can burn. And then they're free to party in the woods, you know, now that dull care has been burned. So um, it is a pretty weird ritual. Uh, here's a fun fact. The stone owl speaks to uh, the assembled Bohemians and this voice, and this is true, by the way, the voice is a recording of beloved news anchor Walter Cronkite, who was a <laughs> Bohemian Club member. Nice. Uh, so, when will you learn that me he cannot slay? Year after year, he burned me in this room. Lifting your puny shouts of triumph to the stars. Our fellowship bans thee for a space. Thy malevolence, which pursues here, has lost its power under these friendly trees. So shall we burn thee once again this night, and in the flames that eat thine effigy, we shall read the sign. Midsummer. Sets us free. You shall burn me once again. <laughs> so um, you know, it's it's kind of just a bit of theatrics, but that's kind of the seed. Um, all conspiracies sort of have this seed of truth to them, and the the rumors started to get out, and conspiracy theorists were like, "They're doing this satanic ritual in there, and that owl is supposed to be Moloch." And uh, maybe that's not an effigy. Maybe it's a real person that they're burning in front of that owl. And actually, the effigy looks kind of small, so maybe it's a child that they're burning inside of there. And this is part of their New World Order, satanic, you know, child pedophile ring stuff, uh, which, you know, we've seen repeated over and over again. This sort of mystical cabal of satanic... Uh, figures who are secretly controlling the world. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, these things kind of recycle themselves into different iterations throughout conspiracy theory, I think throughout the decades. And um, oh yeah, we'll definitely get to kind of that seed of the Bohemian Grove and the elites and how it is kind of, like I, like I said, kind of um, recycled itself and repackaged itself into something today. Um, but yeah, yeah, the Bohemia Grove has been very fascinating to me. Um, I've, I've looked a lot into it as well. Um, you know, and being in the UFO field, we deal with conspiracy theory all the time. And th that's, that's hard because we never want to enable things that might not be true and cause people to do certain things or not do certain things, which again is the implication to many of these and those who spout these conspiracy theories. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself here though, T I want to go back to um, tell us a little about Richard, if you don't mind. I mean, this guy was heavily into comic books. He, uh, 
he wanted to be a stuntman out in Hollywood at one point. You, yeah. I, what I what I kind of envisioned when I started reading about him is this this aimless guy who's just trying to figure out where he fits in the world. And a lot of people can relate to that. All of us can in some way, shape, or form. But um, yeah, could you paint us a little picture of who he is as a human being before we kind of dive into what he's best known for in uh, conspiracy theory circles? Yes. Um, so that was kind of my second step. My first step was, what is this place, the Bohemian Grove? I'd never heard of it. And I wanted to find out like why someone would be motivated to you know stage a raid on this place which is what richard did uh so then you know i was curious to find out some more about richard's life um and i slowly pieced it together over years really but uh richard was born in zanesville ohio uh that's where he was raised uh he was a single child his parents were um, very heavy into evangelical christianity and, um, they were, uh, they had a lot, they had some issues. His father was abusive to him. Um, he had a very bad temper, so he was abusive to him and his mother. So he didn't have a good relationship with his father. He had a great relationship with his mother. Um, and towards the end of his father's life, you know, they kind of made amends with each other a little bit. So because there was a lot of fighting inside of his household, I think that he, uh, his escapism was comic books. He became, um, just kind of obsessed with, with comic books and, and superheroes. And of course, uh, at this time that he's growing up in, in the late sixties, early seventies, there was no internet. Um, there wasn't really video games. I mean, I guess you could play Pong. Uh, but so he needed something to escape into and comic books were kind of a, a cheap, easy solution for that. But I think that's where a lot of these things that would affect him later in his life started was, um, being so immersed in this comic book world. He started reading every comic book he could find. And one thing that he kind of bonded with his mother over was she loved to sew. So she would make him these really nice costumes for local parades and, and costume parties and stuff like that. Uh, she made him a Batman costume when he was young. And he really had this vision that he wanted to actually be a superhero. So uh, when he got out of high school, his dad was kind of like, you're 18, you need to get out of the house right now. So he joined the Marines. And he viewed that as sort of a superhero training school. Um, and then when he got out of the Marines, uh, this is when, as you said, he became very aimless. He had these sort of dreams that he was maybe going to be a stuntman or a Hollywood action star. So he actually went out to a stuntman school in California and, um, it was a, it sounds like a very colorful stuntman training that he went through. Uh, it's by an interesting guy named Kim Kahana, who's kind of a, a legend in his own right. Um, but he had a lot of trouble finding work. He kind of kicked around Hollywood for a while, uh, trying to find jobs. But um, as his friend Lon, who he met in stuntman school, said, he didn't really have the social skills, you know? Like, if you're going to break into Hollywood, you got to be out there, like, talking to people all the time, making connections. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. 
And that uh, wasn't really his, his strong suit at all. So he just kind of drifted and drifted uh, working odd jobs as a delivery driver. Um, he attempted to go to a, a wrestling school at one point because he thought maybe he could be like a, a pro wrestler. Um, and then his life kind of uh, dumped on him pretty bad. He went through a really bad stretch where in the late 90s, uh, roughly from about like 1998 to 2000, uh, he just had this long string of bad things that happened. Uh, both of his parents died. Um, and that was really hard for him to deal with. Um, you know, his mom died or his, his father died and then his mom died shortly after that. They left him a pretty sizable inheritance, mm -hmm. but uh, he didn't really have anything to do with the money because he hadn't really pursued a career seriously. He had tried to do some creative endeavors and they kind of fell apart on him. Uh, and I think that was very frustrating to him. Um, he, he had this strange idea about a relationship that he tried to pursue. and right, that, With a country music star, right? Yes, right. I'm not mistaken. Okay. And it just all, like, wasn't working out. And I, I imagine he was feeling just terrible and, and you know, sort of helpless and had nothing to turn to. He didn't have a lot of friends at that time. Uh, he had met his friend Lon in stunt school, but other than that, he didn't have a lot of good friends. So he had no support network or nothing to sort of distract him. And he's sitting around uh, in his apartment. He had moved to Austin, Texas at, by that point. So he's sitting around, uh, you know, probably stewing on his couch. And he turns on Austin Cable Access. And that's where he sees a documentary, quotes, about the Bohemian Grove uh, that was produced by a guy who's pretty well known these days. But at the time, he was kind of an obscure figure, Alex Jones. He sees this documentary and, and Alex Jones in this documentary puts forward that idea that they are doing satanic rituals in the Bohemian Grove. And uh, who knows, folks, they might be sacrificing live babies. And, and stuff like that. And it kind of just snaps into his head that this is, this is wrong. And, uh, you know, this sounds like it's a documentary, so it's true. And this is going to be my mission. I'm going to suit up as a superhero, get a bunch of weapons and raid this Bohemian Grove place. So I can help these people out. that are going to be sacrificed. Uh, and, and so he eventually decides that he's, going to do that and um uh he go he drives up to the bohemian grove um he moved from austin to carson city uh nevada and he just kind of sat in an apartment there for about a month planning this raid and oh, um, yeah and i know like we're seeing like the birth of this kind of uh new richard i guess almost like a uh, a baptism of sorts and it starts with alex jones of yeah. course so um yeah i guess you know i guess without too much detail i definitely want people to read the book but yeah tell us about his adventure at the grove finally he uh you know he suits up in that costume you see in your uh your background there and i've got the yeah. book right here it's 
pretty scary, man. If I saw yeah. that dude out and about, I would not mess with him. So yeah, yeah tell us a little about the Bohemian Grove incident, if you don't mind. Yeah, it was uh, very much a misadventure. It did not go at all how he envisioned in his mind. I think in his mind, he thought that he would um, he would sneak into the grove at night and he would find a group of uh, you know politicians and and other powerful men who were literally doing a satanic sacrifice and that he would uh, stop them from doing this and and save whoever was you know being sacrificed and and then you know the media and the police would roll in and the bohemian grove would be busted wide open and he would be like a a, an actual superhero uh but that's not what happened at all um he kind of got lost in the grove uh he ended up staying overnight in a cabin that he had broken into and when the sun rose he started walking around he came face to face with the uh the great owl of bohemia is the name of the statue uh which is supposedly moloch and he thought that the statue was made out of wood um like carved out of a redwood tree but it was made out of stone so his his uh, goal was to set it on fire uh but he couldn't so he started a nearby mess hall on fire instead because he was like, I got, I want to do some damage while I'm in here. Um, that tripped uh, a fire alarm, and he very soon found himself having an armed standoff with um, four Sonoma County Sheriff's Department uh, officers, and he was very close to dying. Um, and in fact, he was kind of weighing it over in his mind whether he wanted to engage or surrender, and. At kind of the last second, he decided that he was he was going to surrender to the police. Uh, they arrested him, and uh, he spent the next roughly six and a half years in jail, um, and then was out on parole after that for a couple of years. And then after that, you know, he was kind of I, I actually started corresponding him with him while he was still on parole, so he you know couldn't leave. Uh, uh, Redwood City is where he was doing his parole. Okay. Also, I, I want to point this out. I, I, I haven't done this in interviews before. Uh, one of the things I love is I got to see um, a piece of paperwork that listed his parole stipulations. Uh, and they were, he couldn't be within like 15 miles of the Bohemian Grove in, in Northern California. He couldn't be within one-fourth of a mile of the Bohemian Club clubhouse in downtown San Francisco. And, and I love this this clause. Uh, he could not own costumes was part of his parole. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the one they should be worried about is uh, owning costumes and not trying to uh, get back in the grove. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. funny. I like that. Yeah. I've never seen it on... on- as a parole stipulation before. So, yeah, yeah, that's gotta be a first for sure. Um, well, yeah. So he spends this time in jail, which again, is just crazy. And, um, kind of the reason he didn't, uh, you know, open fire or do anything with these cops is because of this person he was obsessed with. Again, we'll leave that for the reader to follow that journey, that path in the book. Cause it's very fascinating as well. But, um, so, we have to talk about your uh, your interactions with this guy. I mean, 
again, you're not one of these writers who just, you know, says, all right, I'm just going to interview this person over email or text and call it a day. Like you met up with him, you got to know him. And that's what makes him so human in your book, where it would be easy to see the, you know, the guy in the photo of your book and laugh at this crazy journey he went on. But I, there's a person there. And there's yeah. a story and there's a reason that everything led up to him following what Alex Jones had to say, trying to light this place on fire, trying to save humanity. Um, yeah. So what was it like meeting Richard for the first time? I, I can't imagine if I were to go to meet someone this deep into conspiracy theory, I'd be a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. So, yeah, what was that experience like? Yeah. Um, so I was corresponding with him in one thing that was really great, by the way, was uh, when he first contacted me, it was uh, it was by email. But he was like, you know what? I don't like using email at all because uh, the CIA and the FBI and everyone is monitoring me. And I, I'm, I'm sure I know that he was on like some watch lists and stuff. So he might not have been entirely wrong about that. So for probably like the first year that I knew him, we corresponded by writing each other letters which was just so, um, it was really cool because uh, I was like, wow, I haven't written a, a letter with a piece of paper and a pen for a long time. So, um, you know, I would ask him some questions by letter and a, a week or two later, I would get this uh, package that would have like a 16 page letter response. Uh, and he answered a lot of my questions that way. But then as his parole was uh, wrapping up, he said, um, you know, I'm finally free. What I want to do is I want to take a 48 state tour, uh, and I'm going to stage a peaceful protest in each state. Um, you know, and, uh, he adopted a new superhero persona for this tour that was called thought crime. Um, and he sent me his itinerary and he's like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to San Francisco and protest uh, by the Bohemian club. And then I'm going to go over to the, the golden gate bridge and uh, I'm going to go to Vegas and I'm going to protest on the strip. You know, uh, I was like, wow, this is uh, the strangest road trip adventure I've heard of. Um, but he said, you know, I'm coming to Wisconsin, uh, which I live here in Milwaukee. And he was like, I'd love to, to meet you while I'm in, in Milwaukee. And I said, yeah, of course, of course. So this was in July of 2011. Uh, he showed up in Milwaukee and I went downtown to meet him, which was a, a weird experience. It's always kind of weird meeting someone in person, um, especially if they're wearing a, a superhero costume out in public. Um, but he was really nice. I really liked talking to him. Uh, he didn't seem like some crazy kooky guy, like muttering to himself and, or whatever. He was very well-spoken. And I think that's an important part of his story too. Like he wasn't stupid. Uh, he had read a lot about American history and, um, you know, he was a very creative person that had artistic abilities so I met him. I was like, I got along with him really well. And uh, he did a protest march walking around downtown Milwaukee. And, uh, and and this was a clue, by the way, that Richard wasn't alone. 
we were walking by a hot dog stand vendor and this guy sees him. He's like, Hey man, I love this costume. He's like, Hey, are you into Alex Jones? And, <laughs> and Richard was like, well, yeah, I used to be. And he's like, are you into uh, David Ike? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I love him. He's like, all right, man, free hot dog on the house. I was like, wow, this, this hot dog vendor is a total conspiracy believer. I never would have guessed that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I walked around with him there in Milwaukee, and um, I met up with him the next day. We went down to Chicago because he wanted to stage a sort of uh, cringeworthy protest in O'Hare Airport. Um, so yeah. I went with him and it was nerve wracking because we walked in and immediately I saw security guards like in every corner of the room talking on their walkie talkies. And I was like, oh, we're going to we're going to get arrested here for <laughs> sure. Uh, but they didn't they didn't move on him. And um, he drove off and continued on to uh, Indiana or wherever he was going to complete the rest of his his tour. And I was like, wow, Uh and then I ended up meeting him two other times after that, and each one was a an experience. Right. I know. Um, you know, he would go on to to do these videos with um, with his characters that he kind of created and the conspiracy theories behind them. And I know you were a part of that. I got to know how that was. But um, and you mentioned the name David Ike. We might as well just touch on that right now um he became kind of like the the way in which um richard saw the world at that point he started with what a lot of people do alex jones or you know these youtubers who at this point a lot of them don't even really exist anymore because of deplatforming and and stuff like that which is another issue we'll get to but um the one thing about Ike that really caught my attention was, um, you know, Richard started believing in this whole reptilian thing, which yeah. is huge in the UFO field. So um, yeah. why do you think it is that he started gravitating, uh, leaving what Alex Jones had to say and moving to this other, you know, conspiracy guru, as we call them, and uh, believing this, I would say, much more ridiculous kind of reality than what Alex Jones was saying. Yeah. So um, I think we'll talk a little bit about this later too, but uh, Alex Jones, uh, after Richard was caught and, you know, he's awaiting trial, um, Richard had a public defender who represented him. Uh, and I got to do an interview with him too. Uh, his name's Jeff Mitchell, a uh, very interesting guy. Um, so Jeff, uh, attempted to contact Alex Jones because he was like, maybe he can help me with this case in, in some way. Like, you know, he could have Richard's back in some way, try to provide information as to why uh, he would be motivated there. Um, and the, the story didn't get picked up by a lot of media, but it was covered in some newspapers in Northern California. And they also attempted to contact Alex Jones to get a comment on the story. And Alex Jones was like, this guy sounds crazy. I have no idea why he would do that. Don't talk to me. I'm not going to participate in any way. So obviously Richard felt very betrayed that this person who had inspired him so much uh, offered him zero support at all. And so I think he was looking for someone to replace Alex Jones. And he happened upon the work of, of David Icke 
and completely uh, dived into it. He went to go see one of uh, David Icke's lectures, which, by the way, lasts about nine and a half hours long. That's one. Dude, I can barely do like 45 (laughs) minutes on a stage. I know. I know. I I was like, I don't see how it's possible. But he went and attended the entire nine and a half hour long lecture. Um, And this is what I found to be so crazy about this story. Richard, uh, when he went into the Grove, um, part of his motivation, I would say, is that he was very much into Christianity. Um, You know, he quoted a lot of Bible verses as being his inspiration for, you know, the the law of God being above the law of man, and that's why he had raided the place. Uh, And then while he was in prison, he converted to be a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, But he gets out, he starts reading the work of David Icke, and he completely abandons religion entirely because he's so inspired by his work. Uh, And he, um, this was, I had not really heard of reptilians. I'd kind of, I had heard something about them, but probably in the second or third letter that he wrote to me, he mentioned something about a reptilian agenda and I said, uh, could you tell me more about that? And, and, and boy, did he, because the next letter I got was like a 20 page explanation of reptilians and how the earth is hollow and there's a reptilian base inside of it. And the moon is like a reptilian spacecraft and they're disguised as world leaders. Yeah. Um, and so this was uh, such an alarm bell to me. The Nashville bombing happened on Christmas, uh, which is so shocking, right? This RV explodes. and But he was warning people to stay away. And I had a hunch that turned out to be right on this. I was like, I bet this guy is into some conspiracy stuff. Because he's not randomly trying to kill people. Uh, It seemed like he was targeting that AT&T center. But like he had this IG thing, right? Yeah, yeah, and he had this loudspeaker warning people to to stay away. So I was like, "There's got to be some conspiracy stuff going on here." And sure enough, uh, before he died in that suicide bombing, he had mailed out some packages to some different people he knew, and in them was a lot of stuff about reptilians and and other aliens and uh, a bunch of other conspiracy theories. So here's a guy who looks like he had some similarities to Richard. Right. Yeah. And I will see that kind of play through a lot of these things. Um, I believe you covered in the book and I remember reading in the news about a couple who also believed in the reptilian thing and ended up murdering the other one because they were, they were a reptilian. Um, Again, like these details in your book are so rich and um, I I don't want to, give everything away. But um, I guess, you know, now he's all in like Richard has created this new reality in which kind of everyone's the enemy, Um, which is interesting too, because this is a guy just looking for acceptance and looking for a connection with other human beings. Yet everyone is kind of the enemy. It's such a weird, perverse way of, um, of living your life. But uh, that's kind of how it is for people who get involved in these heavy conspiracy theories. And um, I think the other thing that really hit me was uh, 
when you talked about when you went with him to the Bohemian Club in San Francisco and he he finally had his moment to be outside of the club and give that that famous, you know, speech to at least to him famous, right? And um he got pretty choked up and I remember you 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 put the speech in your book, you can find it on YouTube and uh I really felt for him in that moment cuz he wasn't alone in that moment. You were there. He had other people supporting him and I think that's kind of what he always wanted. My name is T. Krulos, and I'm a journalist. I'm here in front of the Bohemian Club with Richard McCaslin, who has returned once again as a phantom patriot and is going to say a few words here today. My name is Richard McCaslin. Ten years ago, I was arrested outside the Bohemian Grove. My goal was to expose the Bohemians' crimes of pedophilia, torture, murder, and treason against the American people. In 2002, I failed to convince a jury that these atrocities were occurring because I had the proof. Don't let these cold-blooded reptiles destroy the world. In 2002, I was alone when I faced these bastards. Today, I stand here with the Pacific Protectorate, and I ask America, all Americans, to do the same thing. Thank you. So um, what was that experience like at the Bohemian Club? And uh, now you were in, man. Like, he put you, <laughs> he made you introduce him yep. and the speech and everything. So what was that experience like? And what'd you take away from it when he kind of uh, got pretty emotional with it all? What's up, guys? Ryan Sprague here. And I'm just dropping in to remind you about our Patreon campaign. Somewhere in the Skies is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So if you want to help the show on a monthly basis, we have tons of rewards for you in return including shout-outs on the show and website, bonus content and episodes, and free merch. Want to be my guest or pick a topic for the show? You can do that, too. So if you'd like to learn more and to help support the show, visit patreon.com slash somewhereskies. Thank you, and keep looking up. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was a, it was a crazy weekend for sure. Um, <laughs> he, uh, so in 2012, um, he uh, had switched back to email by this point. Um, when he was on tour, he decided that he was, he was okay using email again. So he sent me an email and he said, you know, January 20th, uh, 2012 is going to be the 10 year anniversary of the date that I raided the Bohemian Grove. So what I want to do is dress up as a phantom Patriot again, and I'm going to march to the Bohemian club in downtown San Francisco. Uh, and I'm going to stand out front and read a speech and I want you to be there. Uh, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to fly out to San Francisco. Uh, he had made a connection within the real life superhero community. Um, I should note that at first the, the real life superheroes didn't want to have anything to do with this guy. Like they were like, this guy sounds completely crazy. He sounds like he's potentially dangerous. Like we don't want him part of our, uh, movement or subculture or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but he had made a connection. There was, um, a real life superhero from San Francisco who's known as Motormouth. And that is because this dude cannot stop talking. He just talks his entire stream of consciousness nonstop. Uh, and as it turns out, he was sort of a conspiracy believer himself. So he, um, he liked Richard. He liked this idea of meeting Richard and he was like, well, he's not wrong. You know, I, I agree with some of the stuff that he says. And then he also roped in one of his team members named Mutinous Angel, who I don't think had any idea what was going on. So um, the two of them met me and Richard. Uh, we had a camera person with him who was a, a friend of a friend who lives in San Francisco. Uh, we walked up to the Bohemian Club and he read the speech and he, he, he got it off his chest. You know, he uh, accused the, the Bohemian Club uh, of doing these rituals in the grove. He read an excerpt from a book that was very influential on him called Transformation of America, uh, which is this very strange account um, by a woman named Kathy O'Brien. Uh, he read that and he was just so glad that there, he wasn't alone, that there was at least... Um, you know, a few other people with him and some people stopped, they were walking on the street and they kind of just stopped and pulled out their, their cameras like people do. So he had a little, a little audience, not a big audience, but he at least had a few people who were listening to him 
And when he was done with the speech, he just kind of broke down a little bit. And he was like, this is all that I've wanted for the last 10 years. And he was like, don't let these people rule your life. And uh, he had a moment. And I had really hoped, honestly, I'd really hoped that this was sort of cathartic and that maybe he had finally gotten some closure and uh, he could move in a healthier direction after that. But that turned out to not be correct. Right. Um, is, is that something you're willing to share with us, T? I know it's a pretty impactful part of the book as well. Um, and you, you detail it so um, respectfully, I think. Because, again, it's so easy to just laugh at what this guy has done and the life he led and move on with your life. But, um, again, there's a person here, someone who there's a reason that things led up to this point. So yeah, would, if, if you're okay sharing with what happened to Richard and what oh, that sure. meant to you, you know, getting to know this guy. Yeah. You know, uh, I of course didn't agree, uh, believe in almost anything that Richard believed in conspiracy wise. Uh, but there was, there's a lot of things that I, I liked about him. He, I thought was a very creative individual. He had made all of these superhero costumes, which, Looked really cool. Uh, this was sort of a hobby he had been doing his whole life. He was uh, an illustrator. He he created these very interesting looking comic books, um, and you know he had made these videos that you know had some fun elements to it. Um, so I thought he was creative and imaginative, but that uh, imagination, unfortunately, I think was also uh, it was like a double edged sword because it. Um, it made him see symbolism and stuff that wasn't there. And it was taking a very heavy toll on him. So, uh, you know, in 2000, early, early 2019, um, I was working a part-time gig as a, a bartender and I got a text from Lon, who was, um, the guy that Richard met in stuntman school. And Lon was really his only long-term friend that he had. Um, and, you know, Lon told me he, he felt like Richard didn't have a lot of friends and he needed somebody to kind of look out for him. And he kind of uh, selflessly filled that role. So Lon sent me a text and said, I have to talk to you about Richard. Uh, call me as soon as you can. And right then I knew that something terrible had happened to Richard. I thought that he had either perhaps uh, for some reason snapped and done something like gone back to the Bohemian Grove or, or who knows, or that he uh, was dead. And as it turns out, uh, he died. Um, in, in 2018, uh, he, he uh, packed up his stuff. He drove out to Washington, D.C., he parked in front of a Freemason temple uh, in Washington, D.C. It's about a mile away from the White House. Um, and he died by suicide in his truck, which had a bunch of signs on it that were talking about Freemason conspiracies and stuff. So that was kind of his, his last message. Um, and it was very sad to me uh, because I had taken the time to get to know him. And like I said, he had this creative ability. I just wish, I really wish he could have channeled some of that in a different direction. 
But I really feel that the conspiracies just had slowly dragged him down over a long period of time. And eventually uh, they killed him. Right. It's very tragic. And, you know, I I feel the same way because, I mean, being in the UFO field and kind of the circles I'm in, I get sent messages and emails constantly about, have you heard about, you know, the, the thing going on with 5G or the reptilians or or QAnon, and I'm just like, you are, you're too important in the world to people and to society to, to get into this. And that's what's most scary to you. And we'll talk about that in a little bit is, um, I feel like early on in conspiracy theory circles, you kind of, you could laugh about it, you know, the whole tinfoil hat sort of thing and, and whatnot, and you could have fun. And yeah. it was like it was cool to question things. And I will admit, for for a little while, I was heavy into the truther thing about nine eleven and um, and kind of stuff like that. But uh, you know, as you evolve and see the world for what it really is, it, it's it's not easy to create a conspiracy that elaborate. Um, I, I'm sure it happens, and we can talk about that. But. Um, Moving away from Richard, because again, like he's kind of the uh, the impetus, or not the impetus. He's he's kind of the allegory for the overarching issue here of conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, there's so much we didn't touch on about Richard that people really need to read the book to get into. But let's talk about in general. Um, we live in a world now full of conspiracy theory, uh, unchecked, wild west sort of thing, and. Um, it's not like it used to be, you know, where who shot JFK was the most controversial thing we were talking about. Right. And um, that's changed a lot. But um, I know you also what I liked about the book is you intertwine Richard's story with all these other things that you explored. JFK conventions, flat earthers, um, uh, anti-vaxxers, all these different sort of things. And uh, where did we take that turn, man, where it went yeah. from like? Who yeah. shot JFK to um, the free world leader uh, cheering on people who attacked the Capitol? Where did yeah. that happen? And for you, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so completely like you're saying, you know, uh, my introduction before I met Richard, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what conspiracy is. And, and I kind of like it. Uh, so my introduction was probably... Uh, when I was a teen, I read a, a lot of books about UFO case files and stuff like that. And I loved it. I was like, oh, this is so interesting. And, of course, a lot of that intersects with conspiracy because it's it's uh, talking about government conspiracy hiding up UFOs. Yeah. I loved X-Files in the 90s, of course. And they had these characters on the show, the Lone Gunmen. And I, I was like, I love these guys. These guys are cool. They're, like, eccentric and they're exploring all this weird stuff so that's really how i viewed conspiracy at that point like you know it's kind of this fun interesting exploration of stuff that may or may not be true and like you said the classics jfk assassination um ufo cases like area 51 and roswell and and stuff like that um so i had this like naive kind of charming view of conspiracy going in and, and that stuff still, I mean, I still think is great. I'm still interested in UFOs. Uh, I don't particularly subscribe to any one particular JFK theory, 
But I think it's an interesting mystery. There's a lot of weird stuff that happened that day in Dallas. Um, so that's still stuff that I like. Where I think it begins to take uh, an ugly turn, I think number one is, I think that there's um, three things. Uh, number one is uh, 9-11. Um, you know, that is a, a pretty heavy conspiracy theory because it suggests that our government uh, let thousands of our citizens either willingly die or they had some knowledge of it beforehand or they actively uh, plotted it themselves. And, you know, it's still... I know there's probably a lot of young people where this is not something they experienced, but I remember very clearly where I was on, on 9-11 and just what a terrible feeling it was uh, seeing those images on TV. So I think there is sort of this like disbelief and, and anger. And I think that uh, it really started uh, Richard, for example, had been thinking about the Bohemian Grove and the quote that he gave me was that he hadn't really committed to the idea of raiding the Bohemian Grove or, or whatever he was going to do uh, until 9-11 happened. And then he was like, that changed things for me. Okay, now I was ready to go in there and possibly die uh, because of these conspiracies. So I think that's an important milestone. Number two... Um, I'll tell you when I really started to fall out of love with conspiracy theory, or I realized that it could have a really, really dark side. And that was um, the suggestion that the, the Sandy Hook shooting it was a hoax, um, which was something that was promoted in a lot of conspiracy sites in these poor families. It like this turns my stomach to think of it. They not only had to deal with their young children being massacred in the school shooting, but they then were being harassed by conspiracy theorists who would call them, email them, sometimes stop them on the street and say, hey, why are you pretending that you had a, a kid that died in the school shooting? That was when I was like, wow, this can be just the most ugly side of humanity can be wrapped up in some of these conspiracies. So it was really, it was a really turning point for me personally. And for a lot of people, I think this is when, you know, Alex Jones had kind of been ignored before that as being some sort of crackpot that was off wherever, just ignore him. But after that, you know, is when people began to uh, take him to court uh, as they should have. And the last major milestone I will say is, um, the campaign and election of Donald Trump. Uh, he, more than anyone, normalized conspiracy theory. He's constantly uh, talking about them, tweeting them out, using them as sort of a weapon against anyone that he doesn't like, really. Uh, and that had severe consequences, I think, because he was spreading these conspiracy theories and he had a very powerful platform to do that. You know, he wasn't some guy uh, broadcasting out of his basement um, out in the desert somewhere or whatever. This is a guy who's the president of the United States. And so he had a very powerful voice, and he used that to spread a lot of conspiracies, a wide range, uh, birtherism, QAnon stuff, you know, whatever fit into his agenda. So I think those were three, at least not all of them, but three major points that, that I can think of yeah 
Um, well, I mean, let's touch on the Trump thing because there's no getting around it. And I know there'll be people watching and listening that are either offended by what we say or, or annoyed or what have you. I don't care because um, you're right. Mm. I mean, facts are facts. Yeah. The president of the United States did not uh, denounce these crazy theories. He did not, uh, you know, there was no punishment for those who sought out violence against these sort of things. Um, there are members of Congress or, or the Senate who have gone up to people from Sandy Hook and told them you're lying, which is just one of the most despicable things I could I could even think of, like you said, the whole crisis actor thing, another big part of your book. Um, And yeah, when you have the president empowering and emboldening these people, that's that's an issue. And uh, there's really no getting around that, no matter what your politics are. I'm not saying Democrats are any better or libertarians or socialists or what have you. The fact of the matter is the previous president, uh, whatever got him votes. So let's talk about that. I mean, we have YouTube YouTubers who um, spout all these theories as well and have just made QAnon this huge monolithic thing now. And um, I seriously doubt that a lot of them actually believe what they're saying, but whatever gets them up to a million views, whatever gets you votes or um, gets you in the newspaper and the headlines. Uh, so let's, let's, let's talk about it, QAnon. The biggest one right now. Um, What do you think of this whole thing, man? I mean, it's just, it's insane that we've gotten to this point where it's gone mainstream. Again, the president of the United States had to actually talk about it. Um, Didn't have to, but chose to. And uh, yeah, what do you got for me in terms of QAnon? Yeah, he was, he was finally called out about this and he had a good opportunity to say, Hey, um, he, he was like, I, I don't know what QAnon is. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure that you know what QAnon is by this point. If you don't have one of your aides, go over to Google and find out what it is because everyone's talking about it. But he was just kind of uh, weaseling his way out of talking about it when he had a really good opportunity to be like, this uh, thing that's being spread around is not true, obviously, you know, Um these uh, theories about like a satanic uh, ring of Democrats and Hollywood and stuff like that uh, is not something that I endorse. That's all he had to say. But of course, you know, he completely said, Oh, I don't know who they are. I hear that they're good people though. And and they, they very much don't like pedophiles, which is great. But QAnon, uh, I really feel is a cult. It's not, it's no longer like a fringe idea or a movement. It's a cult. And um, Donald Trump essentially is a cult leader, like like Jim Jones or someone, uh, along with this mysterious idea that there's someone named Q out there um, when this is someone who's probably just trolling or more likely uh, benefiting from spreading these ideas. And uh, it's very cult-like in a number of ways. One is... They are completely willing to sever uh, their relationships with family and loved ones. And this is really sad and tragic. I actually have a very good friend and he lost his mom down the Q rabbit hole. Uh, And it's very difficult for him. Like 
he can't communicate with her anymore because she's always like trying to convince him about this, this QAnon stuff. And this is a story that's being repeated all, all over. So they kind of, uh, they'll sever the ties to their loved ones and their new family is their fellow QAnon people. That's very cult like, you know? Um, and then, uh, the other thing is, as we saw on January 6th, there was a lot of QAnon believers who were part of that mob in the, the insurrection, uh, or as I jokingly call it sometimes, the, the Q d'etat. Uh, but um, those people, uh, they were willing to die for this cause. And some of them did die for the cause. So again, I think this is very cult-like and the the strategy for approaching it is um, perhaps the same way that you would try to deprogram a cult, because I, I think that's how far they are. And another major thing, uh, and this is, I mean, it's funny, but it isn't. Um, uh, cults a lot of times will envision a, a day of, of reckoning of some sort, you know, a biblical apocalypse or a UFO is going to land and they're all going to, uh, climb on board and escape the earth, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, for QAnon, it's this idea of the storm is going to happen and Trump is going to be victorious and all of these uh, sinister enemies are all going to be rounded up and exposed for being pedophiles and cannibals and they're all going to be put away. Um, so what happens with cults is that day won't happen and some of them will kind of wake up and they'll be like oh i believe this this thing that isn't true at all and i'm moving on with my life but then you have the hardcore people and they will keep it going and they're they're you know they'll have this high level of cognitive dissonance where they try to think their way around this obstacle so for example um some q non-believers now believe that Trump actually is going to be sworn in as president on March 4th because March 4th was the date for a long time when presidents uh, were sworn into office. But at some point they're like, you know, from the uh, November election to March is kind of a long time to do this transition. Why don't we shorten it up to January? Right. Uh, but they believe that, you know, surprise, like, uh, it, Biden wasn't a legitimate president because he wasn't sworn in on March 4th and Trump is going to. It's really amazing that your mind can make that stretch, but uh, that's really the nature of a cult. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I remember the day of the inauguration when it didn't happen. The great storm didn't come. Uh, You know, people started going on these QAnon forums and watching these people have a meltdown. And, you know, laughing about it. And again, it's hard because I don't want to uh, paint all these people as crazy or or um, members of a cult. Uh, but you're right. There are cult-like mentalities clearly happening here. And it's not just like, you know, loners who have nowhere else to go. And this is the tribe that they finally found, kind of like Richard would be. Um, you have successful businessmen and women who yeah. believe in QAnon. You have um, the barista at your coffee shop or the uh, the foreman for a construction company. Like it doesn't seem to kind of fit that mold anymore of like lost people finding something, um, which is scary. So I guess kind of playing off of that, man, um, 
what do we do? I mean, the bell has been rung. Can we not, will this ever stop? Or will it just, like you said, evolve into something else? Uh, These people firmly believe they're right. And that they are, um, you know, you mentioned in the book, this idea of the, uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, like thinking you are smarter than everyone else and you know the real truth, uh, which is a whole other issue as well. But um, deplatforming happens on YouTube. You know, Alex Jones, um, David Icke, they've all been taken off social media, this, that, this, that. And then everyone starts saying our free speech is disappearing. Oh, my God. Um, what do you think? Because, I mean, yeah, of course, we all are advocates of free speech in this country. It's one of our, you know, our founding things in the Constitution. But um, how do we stop what seems to be something that just grows bigger and more insidious and more violent up to the point where people died at the Capitol because of this? Yeah, it's a really hard question, you know, and it's something that I've thought about a lot uh, as I was finishing the book and, and throughout the last year, year plus now. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. I think that, number one, it should be addressed as uh, a, pro- a national emergency, really. There should be um, not some conspiracy like, you know, police state or something, I'm saying there should be a, definitely a committee that is uh, trying to think of solutions. Um, I think that, and I hope that, I, I don't know, I hope that schools will begin to implement things like mandatory media literacy classes so people can learn, uh, you know, what a good source of information is and, um, you know, what type of media has factual reporting and what type of sites are like Infowars? Because it's really hard to tell the difference between legit news and misinformation right now. I mean, I've been fooled before. I've seen something that looks like a headline. I'm like, I can't believe that that happened. And then, you know, a few clicks later, I'm like, oh, this didn't happen. This is some garbage site. There's a there's a site that actually gets me all the time on Facebook. And um, it's called like We Got This Covered or something like that. And I'll have news about superhero movies. I'm like, what? And then I'll click on the link. And it'll be like, so we heard a rumor from somebody that this yeah. was going to happen. <laughs> I was like, you totally got me. That's not true at all. Yeah. So, but this, there's so much of that being pumped out that I hope that we teach children um, how to make choices about information that they get. And, uh, you know, there's this term that really kind of makes me cringe, um, and it's do your own research. Now, I love to do my own research. I'm sure that you do too, Ryan. Uh, you know, when I was young, I used to love to do nothing more than go to the library and look through books and pick out books I wanted to read. So I think that doing research is a great thing. But um, like you were saying uh, with the Dunning-Kroger thing, uh, you know, your research is not equitable to someone who does actual research uh, in fields like science and, and technology and stuff. Um, so, I mean, it just needs to be addressed as a problem. There needs to be better education. As far as deplatforming, I think that's such a, a whack-a-mole problem. Um, you know, for example, YouTube... This, this is just so crazy. 
Um, to back up, uh, there were these researchers, researchers at a university, and they went to some flat earth conferences, and they did questionnaires with people who attended them. And they found that 99.9% of flat earthers had gotten into that because they uh, got sucked down a YouTube rabbit hole. They're watching something about something else, and YouTube pushed them towards the flat earth stuff. Yeah. And then they were binge watching flat earth videos. And some of them make like a, you know, what seems like a reasonable argument. Uh, and then the next thing you know, they're at a flat earth conference. <laughs> so uh, YouTube eventually pulled those videos. But by the time they did, there already was this entire subculture of flat earthers who had their own conferences. Uh, they record their own flat earth hip hop, which is very interesting music to hear. <laughs> interesting, yeah. Uh, so it was too little, too late. Uh, and I think that's the problem with a lot of these deep platforming things is they wait until it's a, a huge, huge problem. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, there is the argument to be made. I don't know how much I agree with it, but by pulling these people off of their platforms, you're kind of, you're giving them a sort of hip factor that they're the truth tellers and, you know, a martyr, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so it's kind of a, a damned if you do damned, if you don't type of situation. I, and I don't know. It, the other thing that's really hard about this is it's really hard to talk someone out of these beliefs once they've jumped into them. Yes. Like, um, I think that's, one of the major issues is, uh, like you said, um, we we live in a world now where we can't tell fake news from real news. And, you know, you can blame the mainstream media for some of that, obviously. Um, certain news media sites exist for a very biased approach to something politically, uh, economically. And at the end of the day, they want views. They want ratings. YouTubers want people to to stream their stuff or um, to click like on their social media. So they're going to just keep spouting these things that are unsubstantiated, unfounded, um, because that's what you do. And uh, it's scary. It's scary to think that no matter what we do to try to convince people that, um, you know, you should be wearing a mask during the pandemic, uh, it's not going to change their mind. It's just not. And people are going to get sick and people are going to die because of it. Um, and again, you know, I don't want to make this uh, whole conspiracy theory issue about bashing the right or um, yeah. conservatives. Um, it, it seems to be a large percentage statistically of the more extreme right side that believes in a, a lot of this stuff. But hey, look, I'm, I'm on the opposite side of that when it comes to that sort of stuff. And I still fall for fake news and i still think huh maybe there is something to that conspiracy so um look anyone can get sucked into this stuff and like you said with youtube yeah you type in like you want to know one little thing about flat earth you're gonna end up watching 10 hours right, that's right. what youtube does they yeah. want you to stay on that site for 10 hours. So they are going to use their algorithms to keep giving you more flat earth stuff. And by the end, of course you're going to start believing it because you just watched 10 hours about it. So yeah. I, I have to agree with you. Um, I feel 
helpless in trying to convince these people that um, not only are these things dangerous, but they're just, they're not real. They're not real. Um, but let's, 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 I guess, on a lighter note, T, um, yeah. what is real? As someone who has gone to the UFO Congress um, to anti-vaxxer events, to flat earth conferences, I mean, you've done it all, man, at this point. Um, what conspiracy theories do you personally think are um, healthy, I guess, in one way of putting it? And uh, yeah, any that you really think could be true? Yeah, uh, and and all this, by the way, is a, a subject I'm going to explore in a column in a couple of weeks called Good Weird, Bad Weird, where I'm talking about stuff that I love. You know, I love paranormal stuff um, yeah. and UFOs and, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, and, and this is an important point, too. Um, in my book, there are several points in which I tell a story about something that probably sounded like a conspiracy theory. Uh, as it was happening or, or afterward, but that we now know is true. Uh, for example, the MK Ultra program, right? Right. So this right. is a, a terrible CIA program where they um, tested different drugs on unwitting people to see if they could possibly come up with some sort of agent that would be a mind control device that they could use, you know, in the Cold War. So they did these terrible experiments on people without their, their knowledge or consent. And if that uh, would have been leaked out in any way, uh, I'm sure people have been like, oh, that's a, that's a conspiracy theory. That sounds crazy, you know. But we know that's true because um, they tried to shred all the documents on that, but some of them had been uh, misfiled. So there was a Freedom of Information Act request and those files were discovered and they, they lay out just part of the program. Who knows what the full sc uh, scope of the program was? Just the part that we know about was, was absolutely terrible. And there's other stories like that throughout history of things that uh, are conspiracy-like, but they're, we know that they're true. There's evidence that they're true. So I certainly you know don't ever want to be like, Oh, all conspiracy, this is all fake. Everything's a conspiracy is, is total garbage because um, those stories are true. And a lot of uh, conspiracies start because there is some kernel of truth. But then people, uh, it's like that telephone game that you play when you're a kid where you whisper something in, in one person's ear and they whisper it into the next person's ear. And by the time you get to the end of the line, it's a, a it's a message that sounds a little bit like the original, but not quite. So I, I think that there are, um, there is a lot of truth and there is a lot of legitimate mystery. Uh, I very much think that UFOs are going to be um, a big story this year. And uh, the story that it's going to turn out that a lot of the stuff uh, wasn't conspiracy. It, it was true, true stuff, you know? Good answer. Uh, Good answer, my man. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely believe that, um, you know, we're going to find out uh, some interesting stuff about UFOs. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. And um, like you said, some of these conspiracies turn out to be true. I mean, you know, you, there's that old saying, like, it takes two people to create a conspiracy, to yeah. conspire, where the word comes from. So, I mean, the a lot of these things... 
it, it's just like we deal with in the UFO field when it comes to disinformation or or whatnot. Um, when it comes to something like the MJ12 documents, the supposed right. files, Classic. where you know, like this, the all these historical powerful elite knew were investigating UFOs and were having treaties with aliens, blah blah blah. Um, and we've all kind of come to the conclusion and many very prominent UFO researchers and historians that there's probably some truth in here, but a lot of it's just there to uh, make you look the other way. Those, those, you know, those two lies between the truth as it were. So um, I I would have to agree. I think, you know, this 2021 is going to be an interesting year, um, especially with all the political strife in the United States going on and will probably continue unfortunately. Uh, but for the UFO world, man, I think um, some big stuff is coming down down the pike, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, I just, I can't help but have this pit in my stomach when it comes to um, this trial going on right now in America with the second impeachment of a president of the United States. And um, having incited and almost uh, allowed what happened at the Capitol to happen. Um, what do you think? Is Are we going to see more of these things popping up? I mean, I know there have been threats by things like the Proud Boys or uh, these other groups that have, were a part of what happened at the Capitol saying, we're not done. You know, there's more stuff coming down uh, that we're going to be doing. Um what do we do? How do we combat these things when we don't even know who's involved and we can't tell up from down, left from right anymore? I, I sound very pessimistic, but it's because um, I'm I'm legitimately concerned for it, what's it, going on. It is absolutely concerning, uh, uh, very concerning, um, and that's why I say you know conspiracy should be dressed uh, dressed as like a, a health emergency, a national health yeah. emergency, really. Um, because, and, and by the way, these are people now, um, that Trump is no longer in office. They believe that the election was a, a fraud and, um, and they're not just coming after, uh, Democrats. These people were, were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Right. And, uh, they're, yeah. conf- they're confronting, uh, Mitt Romney and, and Lindsey Graham at airports. I've seen video of both of those. Yeah. So they're they're after the entire deep state, which uh, is pretty much anyone who isn't uh, completely aligned with with Trump. Um, and all of those people that you saw, they didn't magically disappear to anywhere. They're still out there, and uh, they're super pissed off. Yeah, and that they feel like they're they've witnessed this election uh, fraud pulled off by the deep state or whoever. So I think that. Uh, things to look out for um do you remember over the summer it was revealed there was this plot to kidnap the governor of michigan right Uh, yeah yeah uh because they viewed her as a tyrant because she was had lockdown orders in michigan of course Mm -hmm. because there was a pandemic so there was this uh, militia type group that called themselves um the the wolverine watchmen was the name of their their group Nice. And, Two comic book references <laughs> in one group. And they were conspiracy believers, too. They had uh, shared links to InfoWars stuff. They had uh, shared links to pandemic hoax stuff. And they had progressed on this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan and hold a mock trial for her or whatever. 
I think that we're going to see more plots like that in the future. Uh, plots to kidnap, disrupt, you know, a sort of like civil war mindset of uh, taking on the government, which is really frightening to think about that there are a lot of people out there with this mindset now. Yeah. It's hard because, you know, look at the war, the war on terror, as it were, you know, we think like going over to the middle East or, 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 you know, to Africa or wherever these horrible things are happening with quote unquote terrorists that by blowing up a small town full of the terrorists, that it's going to, solve the problem or you know look at america right now we're arresting all the people that did what happened at the capitol but that's not going to stop the idealism that has been breeded and ingrained into these people's minds it's probably going to make them more angry and empowered you know all these you know you got the dude with the face paint and the horns um in jail right now and he's become like a an icon for yeah. these people who still believe in these things. They're not going to come out being like, I've learned my lesson. It was all false. I was duped. It's just going to be another part or layer to the story that they're creating as they're going on. So that's what troubles me most is you can, yeah, you can stop certain terrorist groups from doing things, but you can't stop them all. Yeah. And, and this has really been, the wildest thing for me uh, as far as like looking at the big picture from 2010, when I first get an email from Richard to 2020, 21, uh, you know, in 2010, Richard was very typical of what you would think of a conspiracy believer. He was kind of a lone wolf, you know, he had uh, all these ideas and he, this kind of uh, sat alone as house. And then he did this, um, you know, this raid and it was kind of like, Oh, here's this, uh, one guy who's really fringe, but now, you know, fast forward to 2021 and you look at those pictures of the Capitol and there's thousands of people there and they all believe this conspiracy on some level, you know, some more than others, but they all at least, uh, believe the general premise that, the election was stolen with, you know, uh, fake ballots and stuff like that. And it's an army of conspiracy theorists. This is no longer like some lone guy out in the desert or, you know, the weird guy who lives down the road from you. It's like a full on like army of conspiracy believers. So it's just really shocking to see it move that direction. Yeah. It's shocking. It's um, disconcerting. Um, and, you know, all of this while we're still dealing with a pandemic, which has also become part of the whole conspiracy theory. It, yeah, it's really, uh, it's been such a bad stew of, you know, the pandemic, um, the civil unrest, uh, having a president that's constantly like blaring out conspiracy. It just all mixed together to be this really toxic mix of and and you know people sitting at home they're scared they're angry they're on the internet all the time right that's a big part of it yeah yeah i think this lot these lockdowns have been a huge part of why people are spending 10 hours on youtube watching flat earth presentations or um don't take the vaccine like you know it's gonna kill you blah 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 um yeah i think there's a lot of elements to a lot of this there's no one right answer of how to um, deal with it. And, uh, 
it's tough, man. And, you know, I, I don't want this, this conversation or interview to be like doom and gloom. Like we're all going to die. Like this is the end of society, but um, we have to acknowledge the issues um, which you do so well in the book of what can happen with when one guy believes all this, what about an army of them? Like you said, so um, I guess kind of wrapping up everything in a conspiracy bow. Um, what do you want people to take away from the book? Whether it's about the story of Richard or the overarching issues. Um, yeah. What did you walk away with after coming out with the book with, and um, why should people read it? You know, I, I think when I first started on this, I was just kind of, I was kind of delighted that I had uh, come across this eccentric person who had this interesting life story. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, this is, this is going to be uh, fun for me to write this because I'm going to get to tell about all the weird details of this guy's life. But, you know, I started to get to know him. And here's a really uh, amazing thing, I think. Uh, you know, this was maybe I'd been working on the book for a couple years and I started talking to people about it pretty regularly. They'd be like, you know, hey, T, what have you been working on? And I'll be like, oh, I'm, I'm working on this book about this really interesting guy. And he believes in, in reptilians and he's into all sorts of conspiracy. And there are so many times where I would tell people about this and they would be like, hey, this sounds like this guy uh, that lives down the street from me. Or this sounds like my ex-boyfriend or uh, a guy I used to work with. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of people out there that are not that different from Richard. Uh, and now, you know, I mean, we have a, a congressperson, Marjorie Green, who was in the news a lot over the last couple of weeks because, uh, you know, she had some QAnon beliefs. But a lot of the stuff that Congresswoman Marjorie Green believes in uh, were the same sort of ideas that Richard believed in. So um, this is a, a story about America, really. And I hope that reading the book, people can understand a little bit about where some of this comes from and why and what some of the motivations behind it are. Uh, and it's a, it's a tragic story. I mean, I think there is some, some fun, interesting parts of the story as well. Um, but ultimately it's about, uh, a person who, who had a life and his life was really slowly dis- destroyed because of these conspiracy theory beliefs. And that's uh, really tragic. It is. Um, and I think again, you, you, you hit on it so well in the book and in this interview tonight of this was a person, you know, as much as we think it might be a cool, funny kind of kooky story. Um, it ended tragically. And that's the same for a lot of these people out there who, who do believe in these things. And um, it's so easy for, for us to laugh at them and think they're stupid for believing these things. But um, there's a person behind that. And there's a reason that it got to this point, a desperation to make sense of the world around you. And I think you talk about this in the book a lot. A lot of these people, they just want to know there's a structure to the chaos that is this world. Um, None of us know why we're truly here. One of the biggest questions we'll ever have. And everyone wants purpose and meaning and people 
when they can't find it somewhere, they're going to find it somewhere else. And you will have people like Alex Jones or David Icke taking advantage of that, like a cult leader would. So, um, again, I think it's a book about America. I love that you put it that way. There's a reason it's called American Madness. And, yeah, these things exist all throughout the world in other countries and continents. But um, when you live in a country that prides itself on diversity and uh, free speech and, um, you know, a right to bear arms, that comes with a lot of, uh, you know, caveats. And I think you're right. It's a reflection on where we've been in the past, where we are now, and hopefully a better tomorrow. I, I, I hope. What do you think, T? Do you have hope? Yeah. Um, I do. I mean, it, it, it's easy to get overwhelmed, like, uh, thinking about how many people believe in this stuff. But, you know, I try to balance that out by thinking about how many people are out there doing good stuff and trying to get good information out there in the world. Because there are those people, too. Uh, and hopefully that's helping to, to balance the scales a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, if there's anything I've learned, it's... Um just because someone believes in this QAnon stuff, like it's easy to just, you know, go on social media and say, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. But my mentor, Peter Robbins told me when I got into the UFO field, he said, you're going to meet some crazy people with crazy stories. um, And it's going to be tough. He said, so you have to have empathy and um, just kind of put yourself in their shoes and, uh, and, try to understand how he got to this point with this individual who claims they've been abducted by aliens or they met the reptilians. Um, so I think I kind of take that into consideration too, is having empathy and um, there's a reason they got to this point. Let's try to figure that out and, um, and talk about it instead of, um, I, I think it comes down to, we have a lot more in common with each other than we don't. And um, I think if more people thought that way, Hopefully, we'll live in a better world someday. But, um, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to 2021 in the UFO world um, with a lot of reflection as well in this country of what has happened and hopefully what will not happen again with these attacks and um, death threats to either side of the aisle. Like you mentioned, um, we have to look past politics when it comes to all this. Um, yeah. And hopefully come out on the other side, better people. So that's my little soapbox moment. But uh, <laughs> before we go, brother, um, yeah, is there anything else I'm really missing that you wanted to uh, discuss in terms of um, either the book or conspiracy theory? No, I think that we covered a lot of it. Um, it's, yeah. it's interesting. Um, the only thing I would add, you know, I, I like trying to have an open mind. I, I think that I'm, I'm open-minded about a lot of things. Um, you know, like I said, I'm into a lot of paranormal stuff, so, um, I'm certainly willing to entertain ideas, but you know, there's a line, there's sort of a line where, um, that really became clear to me working on this book and over the last couple of years where, uh, I can, I can hang with someone telling me about how, uh, they telepathically communicate with Bigfoot or something. I was like, okay, but if, you know, someone starts telling me about how uh, Hillary Clinton eats babies or something, and they're going to get a bunch of guns and, and go try to shoot her. It's a different story, you know? So yeah. it's, um, it's something I've really been kind of struggling with, like in the paranormal world, sometimes just trying to 
differentiate between, uh, like I say, what's good, weird, interesting, fun stuff, and and what's uh, maybe some QAnon propaganda or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, and it doesn't get easier. Trust me, brother. <laughs> It's a struggle every day for me as well in the UFO field. But um, you mentioned the word weird, so we have to talk about your podcast, your website. Um, tell us about everything you got going on over there. And, of course, where can we get American Madness? Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so I have a website, tkrulos.com, and uh, you can find out information about all of my books on there. I also write a weekly column called Tease Weird Week. And it's really just, you know, me writing about whatever subject I want to that particular uh, week. Uh, as the title implies, you know, I write a lot about paranormal stuff, conspiracy, uh, unusual subcultures, stuff like that. And, and just about a month ago, I started doing a podcast version of the column where, um, you know, I interview someone like uh, Ryan was on a recent episode which was great. Uh, I interview a guest and uh, then me and my friend Heidi kind of go through some weird news and we usually end with a track from a, um, an awesome band. So it's fun. I'm enjoying doing that. It was kind of a pandemic project that I finally got around to. Um, but you can check that out every week at tcrulos.com. Awesome, my man. And the book is available, I assume. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's available. All the major outlets. Yeah, um, I usually tell people to check out bookshop.org because they're a cool site and they actually kick some money to local independent bookstores. So I really like that option, but it is available wherever you can find books as well. Um, And if you go at my website, I have an American Madness tab that has some links uh, to places you can buy it. Cool. Um, Well, I want to end with... um... You mentioned music, and that um, that was part of the book as well. Um, can you remind me of? I mean, this is crazy. One of the some band actually made a song about the Phantom Patriot. This guy right here, supposedly. So I think I'm going to play a little of the song to to get yeah. us out here in post production. But um, yeah, yeah can yeah, you leave yeah. us with that? There's so many little stories within this book that just are a a strange turn, you know? Yeah. Um, So Les Claypool, uh, who's in the band Primus, uh, he lives not far from the Bohemian Grove uh, in Occidental, California. Um, So he was reading the local newspaper. Again, not a lot of media picked up on the story, but some newspapers in Northern California did. Uh, Les Claypool sees this short news article and he's inspired to write a song about it. So he writes this song, uh, Phantom Patriot, which was on his album in 2006, uh, Of Wales and Woe is the name of the album. And it's just kind of like a, a news report set to music. You know, he talks about Richard sneaking into the Bohemian Grove, and the chorus just goes, The Phantom Patriot. Uh, but what was really fun was I like harassed his his talent manager pretty much. I just emailed them over and over again for like months and months, saying, "Hey, could you give me some phone time to talk to Les Claypool? I want to ask him about this this song." And finally, they're like, "All right, you can have ten minutes with Les. He's on he's on tour right now with Tool down in Texas. We'll get him on the phone for ten minutes." Um, and it was a very awkward interview because he was freaked out by Richard. 
He's like, I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure about this. Is this guy gonna like show up at one of my shows and try to kill me? And I was like, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> can't make uh, any promises. Yeah, but it was, it was cool to to have a chance to talk to him just for a few minutes, even. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a pretty cool little uh, addendum to the story overall. Well, um, T, I mean, I think Richard would be so proud of what you put together. I mean, this is a guy who struggled for acceptance his whole life. All he wanted was to be heard. And, um, you know, you can see it in that video at the Bohemian Club. Of Finally, people were there, like, next to him and support him, no matter how far out his beliefs were um again i keep stressing it there's a person behind all of these and um he just wanted to be listened to and now we have something that will live eternally about richard and i'm sure he would he would really appreciate that man again whether you believe in the stuff he did or not so um hey it was so good to um to stretch my muscles tonight and not talk about UFOs for two hours, but to talk about this extremely compelling book that you put together, man. So I got to thank you for um, the book, first of all, and also for coming on Somewhere in the Skies. Today. Oh, thanks for having me. I, this was a, a great discussion. I'm, uh, I was really glad to talk to you about Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.